Gracious God, let these words be more than words. Give us the spirit of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. An entire life can change in a moment. And certain moments can change an entire culture. I would guess that almost everyone in this room remembers exactly where they were when they heard that planes had crashed into the World Trade Center and into the Pentagon. Many of us remember the news and the stunned silence of the days following. And most of you know that I worked at an Episcopal church just across Lafayette Park from the White House before I moved to St. Louis. I came to St. John's 10 years after the attacks, but when I was there, the staff and community were still talking about those days that followed. Particularly, they remembered the first service at St. John's and the first service they were allowed to hold afterward. Being that close to the White House meant that for security reasons, no one was allowed into the church for several days after 9-11. The blocks and office buildings all around the White House were cordoned off. The day fell on a Tuesday. 9-11 was Tuesday. People returned to work on Friday. St. John's holds a regular daily Eucharist at 12.10 each workday, for folks who are in those downtown DC offices. On a regular weekday, there are 10 or 15 people in attendance. On Friday, September 14, 2001, something like 1,000 people came to pray. And the church only seats 800 or so. So people were seated in the aisles and crowded round the outside doors. They even snaked through the halls in the office building. I'm not sure what text was preached that day, but our reading from Jeremiah would have fit well. As I noted last week in my sermon, in the English language we use the word Jeremiah to describe a long, lamenting, scolding speech. After our reading today, you can understand why. A hot wind comes after God's poor people. The destruction that Jeremiah foretells may seem familiar to us. The quaking of the earth, the desolation of cities. This text could have easily been preached on September 14th, 15 years ago. In the midst of Jeremiah's awful speech, one line holds out a candle of hope for us. The whole land will be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. Yet I will not make a full end. The task of prophets is often misunderstood. We tend to think of prophets as holy prognosticators, soothsayers. We imagine prophets predicting the future for kings, but that's a slippery slope. And we might then think that they could tell young maidens when their prince or princess will arrive. We can misunderstand the prophets as God's fortune tellers. When we read their words, we will think of them as pretty grumpy fortune tellers, but that is not exactly their role. Jeremiah didn't need a crystal ball to see what was ahead for Israel. Josiah, the king, was full of himself. Josiah was the head of a small kingdom, and he was the kind of guy who liked to poke the bear, politically speaking. Babylon was a growing empire to the north and east. Jeremiah had a sense that something could go terribly wrong. The task of prophets has two parts. 
The first is to unsettle a society. The prophets tell us, don't get too comfortable. Something is amiss. The prophets call people back to God's law, back to justice, back to mercy. The prophets point out the uncomfortable, the uncomfortable hypocrisies of their day. Unsurprisingly, the prophets don't fare very well. The prophets had another task as well. Besides pointing out the nation's sins, prophets help us to imagine. They help us to imagine what could be next. That's the role of prophecy in Judaism and Christianity. Prophecy helps us imagine another way of living. Prophecy helps us move from lament toward rebuilding. Prophets help us imagine what could be next. The whole land will be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. That Friday, 15 years ago, life started to move back to normal patterns. People were hungry, though, for some prophetic trans, uh, transition. When we went back to work or back to school, but I can remember, maybe you remember, several conversations with friends and neighbors in the weeks that followed. They all centered around the same question. As we realized we hadn't reached the full end, as we moved into this new reality, we were all asking, what will be different? What will be different? <coughs> I have a hunch that's why all those folks showed up to church. We were ready to get back to work, but we had a sense that something had to be different. Fifteen years later, I wonder what is different. We've tightened airport security. We've fought wars. We've survived more terrorist attacks. I wonder, have we let go of 9-11? Have we been able to step back even just a little from the edge? Tempers still seem to me to be simmering. Racism seems to be on the rise since those days. But is that all that is different? What else can be different? I'm not sure 15 years later that we fully answered the question. I hope we haven't yet fully answered the question because I think it will take us generations to live into what could be next. After the desolation, what can we rebuild? There's a story coming out of North Dakota the past couple of weeks that's giving me great hope. It's a protest over an oil pipeline crossing ancient Lakota lands. And it might seem like it's a long way from threats of terrorism coming from the Middle East. But scratch the surface even just a little in most of our world's conflicts. And you'll see that often, often, resources are at question. The conflicts we encounter involving religion and race are also tied to questions of fossil fuel, questions of resources. So over the past several weeks, diverse Native Americans from across the continent have been gathering with the people on Standing Rock Reservation. They're protesting the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline, a pipeline that would start up there in North Dakota and pass between St. Louis and Springfield before terminating in central Illinois. Some of these tribes hold ancient grudges against one another. There were wars between Native Americans long before European settlers arrived. This week, the tribes have come together in support of Standing Rock. 
People are describing the camps up there in North Dakota as peaceful, hopeful, even fun. They're sharing food and good conversation. In a tense moment that ended up funny, some of the protesters were detained because the police thought that they were talking about pipe bombs. It turns out they were getting out their peace pipes. You can't make this stuff up. And the Native Americans have been joined by other young activists from around the country and around the world. There are Black Lives Matter organizers from here in St. Louis up there in North Dakota right now. In their statement about why they were going up to Standing Rock, the organizers made a connection between the pipeline and its effects on drinking water in North Dakota and the lead contamination in Flint, Michigan which overwhelmingly affects black families. Historically, the sites for environmentally hazardous projects have often been located in the backyards of people of color and in the lands of Native Americans. The Standing Rock lawsuit asks why the pipeline was moved from its originally proposed site closer to Bismarck, the capital city, which is 92% white. Native Americans have seen mining and pipeline projects pollute water for generations. Years ago, the native writer and politician Winona Ledoux asked this, someone needs to explain to me why wanting clean drinking water makes you an activist, and why proposing to destroy water with chemical warfare doesn't make a corporation a terrorist. She points out a difficult truth about the world that we live in. We are, all of us, culpable. We are literally invested, many of us, in oil companies, in polluters. Elementary school teachers and librarians, through their pension plans, own stock in companies that are hurting the planet. For the past few months here at Holy Communion, we've been saying a confession. Unfortunately, we're not saying it today we've moved into our next season in liturgy. But for the past several months, we've been saying this confession. We repent of the evil that enslaves us. The evil we have done and the evil done on our behalf. In 2016, the evil done on our behalf covers some mighty big bases. Our lives are caught up in deeply rooted and wide-reaching systemic injustice. Now, in response, we could try and totally isolate ourselves from the system. We could go off the grid. We could ride bikes all the way up to North Dakota, avoid using fossil fuel. We could try to live off the land. Well, you can do that. I don't do well in the cold. Ask Ellis. If we're going to choose to live in the culture, we have at least two ways of going about our lives. We can keep our heads down, consuming what we are told to consume, not asking questions. Or we can become critical consumers. We can ask where a product came from, who raised our food, what were they paid, how are our choices affecting both the people and the planet. We can supplement our consumption by growing some of our own vegetables or by buying them directly from a farmer. We may not be able to stop a pipeline entirely, but we can ask, does it have to come so close to my neighbor's drinking water? Back in 1977, in his book, The Unsettling of America, 
Wendell Berry, the poet, farmer, and cultural critic, asked, how could we divorce ourselves completely and yet responsibly from the technologies and powers that are destroying our planet? He continued, the answer is not yet thinkable. It will not be thinkable for some time, even though there are now groups and families and persons everywhere in the country who have begun the labor of thinking it. I don't know a better description of prophecy than this, to begin the labor of thinking the not yet thinkable, to begin the work of imagining the not yet imaginable. One day our future will look incredibly different. I believe, I hope that gatherings like Standing Rock should give us some direction. When we can cross racial lines, religious lines, ethnic lines, when we can break bread together and laugh together and protest together, we begin that important labor of imagining the not yet imaginable. That's the real scandal at the heart of the gospel this morning. The world around Jesus, represented by the scribes and the Pharisees, can't understand why he would break the taboos. Why would he cross these lines? Why would he share his table with sinners and tax collectors? As usual, Jesus tells a story to engage his opponent's imagination. God isn't counting who is in and who is out, Jesus says. God is out there on the road, looking for lost sheep. God is too busy searching for the lost to notice those differences you obsess about. God is busy finding those who feel unloved, who feel alone. Those who you count out, God celebrates. Fifteen years ago, felt like desolation. Yet it was not a full end. Sometimes in life we all face moments that change us. We all face those times that irrevocably change our reality. Usually we can't change those circumstances. It is the job of faith, the job of the prophets, to help us to ask, what can be next? For now, they announced on Friday, the Department of Justice has halted the pipeline. Celebration broke out in the camp at the news, though there will be people camped out there in, for the long term to find out what's next. I pray that our response can be as joyful, as faithful, and as hopeful as those protests up at Standing Rock. Though we may not yet be able to think of an answer, Though we may not yet be able to fully imagine our future, we can begin. We can ask, hopefully, prophetically, what can be next? Amen.